Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Quidditch, our flagship show here on the Podcast Network, and I'm David Kern. And today on the podcast, we have part two of my interview with Mr. Adam Andrews from the Center for Lit. If you listen to part one, you know that we discussed some general topics in literature teaching. Uh, we discussed some of the problems that can arise in literature teaching, when to deal with things like themes and other components of literature, and even a few of the approaches to teaching literature that Mr. Andrews opposes. Today we have part two, and in part two we talk a little bit more specifically about modern literature and the and approaches to modern literature and what to let your students read in modern literature and when to let them read it and how to discuss it and all those sorts of questions that come up when thinking specifically about uh, modern literature. But before I get you over to the interview, I need to say a quick word from our sponsor, the Institute in Excellence in Writing. They've been sponsoring all month here on the podcast network, and we're really grateful to be partnering with them. They equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. At IEW, it is their privilege to partner with you on this educational journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. Head over to IEW.com where you can discover their podcast, Andrew Pudawa's speaking schedule, and everything you might need to know about any of their programs from their traditional writing programs to their poetry memorization program to their public speaking program to much, much more. And again, that's IEW.com to learn more about the Institute for Excellence in Writing. All right, with that, let's kick it over to my interview, to part two of my interview with Adam Andrews on Approaches to Teaching Literature. Enjoy. Okay, so... I'm back with Adam Andrews. This is part two of our, my conversation with Adam Andrews about literature. We just talked in our first episode before we went and had lunch um, about literature and teaching literature more generally. Right. Uh, today for part two, well, for our listeners, it's a new day. For us, it's just like a couple hours later. We had lunch. You ran in the rain. It was know. a great time so far. <laughs> um, we freshened up our coffee. Um, 
you got to have tea at a restaurant where they heated up the glass for you and everything, the mug for you and everything. It was excellent. Yeah. So we've had a, we've had a whole slew of experiences since last we spoke to you. Um, but we're here to talk a little more specifically about literature, about a, something, you know, more specific topic, less general. Um, you have written for us before on our website and also in the, the upcoming issue of our magazine um, about modern literature. You write about The Great Gatsby, F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel. Right. And the newest issue of our magazine, which is coming out soon, may already be out by the time people, some people are listening to this. And you've written in those articles about why you think we should be reading modern literature, um, why even classical educators should be reading modern literature um, and taking it seriously. Um, can you summarize a few points from your argument for the sake of the listeners here? And then, you know, maybe then they'll go on and listen, read your articles, but uh, give a, just to lead into this next topic that we're going to talk about. Well, sure. Well, one reason I think we should uh, consider contemporary literature, at least with our older students, is that the contemporary world is the one we all live in. And it's the world that we were born into. It's the world with which we have to do. And it's the world of ideas that we are uh, called, destined, use whatever word you want, to deal with. The people who write literature, who actually live in our day and age, uh, work with those ideas as well. And so there's a profound sense in which today's literature is a, an artistic and cultural feature of today's world. Uh, the impulse to focus on the classics and focus on the literature of antiquity is a laudable one for one set of reasons. But I think for another set of reasons, uh, it's just as laudable to want to engage with uh, the ideas that are current today. I think F. Scott Fitzgerald is a great example. His novel, The Great Gatsby, written in 1925, uh, shows a lot of signs of having been written in the 20th century um, after the great earth-shaking changes that took place in American intellectual life, mm -hmm. Darwin's um, origin of species, the, the sci little scientific revolution around the turn of the 20th century, World War I, mm -hmm. a lot of things like that, um, sort of formed and shaped the 20th century. And Fitzgerald's novel betrays a lot of those changes. If we are living in that world and want to engage with that world, uh, knowing the intellectual landscape of that world, I think is important. So I guess there's two reasons why people, two primary reasons I've heard why people might take issue with that. Um, one of them is certainly content based. Um, and we, and I'll bring that up in a second, but another is that they just don't believe that we, we know yet, you know, it's like chronological snobbery, I guess. Mm. And I don't mean, I use that with, that as a term of endearment, right? Like I don't mean that to insult anybody who would claim to be a snob, snob chronological snob. Right. <clears throat> um, certainly both of us are to some extent, I suppose. Sure. Um, but, but some people would argue that you cannot or should not rather in the classroom prioritize some things that are newer because history has not shown them to be of the quality that will make them last. How would you respond to that? And, and the, they would, you know, they might argue, "Oh, sure, F. Scott Fitzgerald. We should read that. We should take it, take it seriously, and think about it, and talk about it." But it's not for the classroom, particularly. How would you respond to that? Well, I might say that uh, drawing a distinction between things that are appropriate for the classroom and things that aren't begs another question: What is it that makes a book appropriate for the classroom in particular? Sure. And I don't know what that what that distinction would be. I guess I'm still thinking about what it would be. <laughs> Should we have a moment to think? <laughs> sure, let's have um, a moment to think. I mean, what might what might someone say to that rejoinder? Uh, 
I, I guess off the top of my head, um, this is one one possible answer to that question is that uh, books that are appropriate for the classroom, and I'm putting words in, in an imaginary person's mouth, I understand, sure, sure. but books that are appropriate for the classroom might be useful for the um, instruction of the young in virtue, for example, and literature might provide models for emulation. And a modern book could do that, you would say, just as much as... No, actually, I was going to go in a slightly different direction. Oh, okay, I okay. would say that the the use to to make that distinction between useful in the classroom because it contains models for emulation, mm-hmm. not useful in the classroom because it doesn't contain models for emulation. I think that I I wonder whether that's an appropriate use of literature. Oh, okay, all. okay, okay. That um, actually maybe great literature is useful for another purpose, which makes modern literature just as useful as ancient literature. Which is to say, and I suspect this might be true, that great authors write for another reason altogether, which is to say, uh, as the, the title of the article that's coming out in your magazine is, mm-hmm. they, they write to say, ecce homo, mm-hmm. this is, behold the man, this is what it's like to be a man in the world I'm living in. I think Homer was doing that. I think Virgil was doing that. I think Shakespeare was doing that. I think Charles Dickens was doing that. And I think F. Scott Fitzgerald was doing it too. And the very fact that he lived in our day and age, relatively speaking, yeah. makes yeah. him even, relative to Shakespeare, right? Like. Relative to Shakespeare, makes him even more relevant for that pursuit than Homer or Virgil or Shakespeare. In other words, I think F. Scott Fitzgerald might have been writing to say, "Here I am, in the wake, living and writing and working in the wake of the Darwinian Revolution and the Scientific Revolution and World War One, and we're all in that world." And being a man in that world is beset with this particular set of difficulties. And we still live in that world. There's a sense in which we no longer live in the world of Shakespeare's particular difficulties or Dickens's particular difficulties or Virgil's particular difficulties. But we do live in the world of Fitzgerald's. Mm-hmm. And so in a sense, if that's what literature is for, then his, his works are at least as valuable as those that came before. Well, if... Okay, so if... If the test of time, so to speak, and if centuries of um, testing, so to speak, and of men of letters approving approving of, it, of something, yeah, right, um, ha- have given us permission, so to speak, to count certain works of literature or art in general. I mean, this is goes. I think this goes beyond just literature. Although sure. literature is a has a particular people have a particular passion about literature um if if that's what has given us permission to look at works like even it will even say up through dickens but say shakespeare or something like that we've got centuries of of approval right how do we know how to judge and what to to choose from a more contemporary selections like a more protect contemporary catalog so there is there's f scott fitzgerald who is in his own way in the last hundred years 80 years say widely considered to be if not great very talented right but then you know how do you determine who else that's contemporary i mean how do you where do you draw the line as as far you how you choose it such a fun topic to discuss because when we ask that question sorry go ahead well i was just saying like is it it's because he's 80 it's been 80 years it's like the copyrights now there's no copyright on it once it's in the public domain yeah or or like but is is twenty five? You know, say Walker, one of Walker Percy's novels from the eighties or something like that, or Wendell Berry now, someone like that. I mean, it, it, do we just trust people who we know, or 
Um, is there is there something more? Uh, it's the the question is so double sided because on the one hand, what we're looking for is someone with authority to tell us what to do. Mm. We're looking for the Western canon to to give right. a stamp, an imprimatur on. F. Scott Fitzgerald, so that we can safely not have to make that decision for ourselves. <laughs> right. Right. On the other hand, um, we want to read books that we like. We want to read books that call out to us, not because somebody told us they were good, but in and of themselves, call out to us and say, you're a human too. I'm a human being. You're a human being. Come join the human family in this day and age that all struggle with the same things. And there are works that do that whether or not they have permission from the canon to do so. Works that have been written recently. I just think of uh, Marilyn Robinson's trilogy, um, Home and Gilead Gilead and and Lila. Um, I don't know what the canon is going to say about those in 150 years, nor do I care (laughs) because those books... Well, you can't afford to care because... you're not going to be I'll here. I'll be dead. I mean, here's the, I think. Here's a, great, here's a great point. I'll be dead when the canon decides on F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway and Marilyn Robinson. So really, in a sense, that's a question that's relevant. And in a sense, it's completely irrelevant. My children, to whom I'm but, assigning those books, will also be dead. But if... Okay, so is, that, is it still irrelevant when it comes to judging which works to tell your student i mean to tell us group of st- students to read i mean because there's one thing f- it's one thing i guess i'll step outside of the homeschooling world right now because it's one thing say if you're suggesting to your your own children in your own home you know read these because these are excellent books um but then it's another thing to assign that mood to a whole classroom and to um to take out, to, to not, you're knocking something else out when you choose to read that. Sure, you are. It's true, and and th- that's an idea that can actually be expanded at infinitum. Every time you choose a book, you're ma- you're you're making a thousand choices of books you'll never read, because right. we don't have a chance of reading them all anyway. And so, on the one hand, you can say, "Well, we need to choose very carefully." Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we can focus instead on learning to read well, rather than than learning to pick the right books. And those are two kind of mm-hmm. mutually exclusive choices. I think there's more value in teaching students to read well so that then, after learning how to read well and learning to distinguish for themselves between a good book and a bad one, they can read for the rest of their careers without our permission or supervision. And that what I th- is what I think ought to be the focus of classroom teaching on, on literature. So the distinction then is between teaching students... Uh, what what to read and how to read well? That- I would say that's a critical distinction, and and that if we if we focus on teaching them how to read well, it matters less and less so, which books we choose to read. So then, is it is it more important? Are you of the mindset that it's more important to read fewer books well in school than to just read a whole bunch of books? Oh yeah, oh absolutely, absolutely. So if you if you if you felt like you couldn't teach your students how to read very well, um, unless you did one or two books. You would rather do that than read 20 books from the canon, but not be as thorough and teach them how to read them? I think so, because because of that, what we just said a minute ago, it's physically impossible for me to expose them to the whole canon by the time they graduate high school or finish college or read for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. Physically impossible. So since that's out of bounds, let's go ahead and do the next thing, which I think might more, be more valuable anyway. Let's teach them how to read well books from a variety of perspectives. Books from the canon, yes. More contemporary books, yes. And teach them to make good decisions about books and to train their reactions 
to books. Right. And that can be done with contemporary literature as well as with classics. This is one of those questions that ideas people hate and that literature people hate. But if you, as a guideline, you know, C.S. Lewis said for every, what do you say? If you're going to read a new book, you got to read an old book too. <laughs> right. Is, would, is it, would you argue for a one-to-one correlation like that? Or would you say how, I mean, in your own life, how do you, do you, do you think about that at all? Or do you just read? Yeah, I just read. I just read. And, um, but do you ever feel like if you've read, like, say you read Marilyn Robinson novel, say Marilyn Robinson comes up with a new novel. You, you, you pick that up off the shelf at your local bookstore or Amazon or whatever. Um, you buy that. Maybe you get the book that just won the Pulitzer Prize. Right. Maybe it's the same book. I don't know. Um, and then maybe you have like a mystery novel that you're reading. Uh-huh. And then, so you spent, maybe then you read a PG Woodhouse novel like during the summertime, which I How always do. How do you do. know what my reading list is? That looks exactly <laughs> like my reading list. I think probably have similar ones. <laughs> okay. So you've done that. And over a course of a month, maybe you've read four books like that. Maybe it's six weeks or something, depending on how much you're traveling, right? Um, but you ever get, get to the end of that and you're like, man, I, my, I need to, like you feel like, uh, something saying to yourself like a conscience almost saying i need to go back and read dante or virgil oh, absolutely or and i wouldn't call now, it do you a follow that oh absolutely okay. i wouldn't call it a conscience i would call it a taste a hunger okay an, an itch in the same way that you well in deeper way that you want a cheeseburger every once in a while okay can i can i follow up yes then? yes okay so if you go to a restaurant and you want a cheeseburger and the cheeseburger is terrible you send it back right <clears throat> what if you you read your Mystery novel or your spy novel or whatever. It'd be a spy novel for me most of the time. You've read your Woodhouse, you've read your Marilyn Robinson, and you've read your contemporary Pulitzer Prize winner, right? And but you you're sensing that that hunger, as you put it, for let's say it's a Shakespeare play or it's right. Dante or something. Okay. So you do that, you start reading that, and your gut's like, I'm not so I don't like this that much. What do you do then? Because have you been do you push through it because it's part of the canon? Or do you just close it and move on. That's given really, that you have limited time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not asking you to tell everyone else what to do, but no, what do you do? I, there have been I've handled that both ways over the course of my reading life, and there have been times when I've said, "This is Virgil's Aeneid, for goodness sakes." The fact that you're bored here in book seven says more about you than it does about Virgil's Aeneid. We know that Virgil's Aeneid is worthy because of two thousand years of testimony. Mm-hmm. I, li- I come from Seattle, Washington, where it rains all the time. When I was a kid, there was this T-shirt that said, the weather in Seattle is beautiful. Ten million slugs can't all be wrong. <laughs> and it's that way with Virgil's Aeneid. The entire human family since 17 BC or whatever it is can't all be wrong at once. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm in the middle of book seven and Aeneid's just boring me to tears, I've pushed on through before and been glad that I did. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if nothing else for the sense of accomplishment, yeah, exactly right. I did it again. I finished. Yeah. yeah. But I would never really want to advise what I would want to advise parents and teachers and even readers in general is be free because art is written for your enjoyment and art is written to delight in various ways and at various levels, the participant. Mm-hmm. Right. And so once we get a, a fair a level of education where we know how to participate in art, I think we can be guided by our delight. And we can say, you know what? I'm not feeling the Aeneid today, but I want to go back to Woodhouse. But in the end, Woodhouse isn't going to satisfy probably as long or as thoroughly or as profoundly as Virgil is. And that's kind of the essence of that canon idea, I think. Practically speaking, it might be that that's where having multiple books going at one time and especially the difficult, challenging books, reading them bits and pieces, like smaller, attempting to chew 
you know, taking smaller bites at yeah. one time is probably beneficial. Yeah. Like don't try to read, you know, don't make yourself try to read the, the need and only the need in two weeks. Right. Read, you know, 50 lines or a book a week or something like yeah. that. You know, there's, you can, you can, you know, pace yourself a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Exactly. Just like with a, an incredible meal. Sure. You, know, you have incredible, like crazy good steak with a whole bunch of sides and stuff you like that. You don't just pound eat. it down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's also for the sake of the food or the book in this case, as much as, and the, and the artist as much as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, okay. So what do you do in the classroom then? So inevitably we all have students who are like, Ugh, the Aeneid is right. Gross. Right. And, and here's where I think the classroom is a special environment because uh, it's your job as a teacher to not only fuel the delight of these human beings that are part of the human family and whose souls are tuned to, to great art because they're human beings. Mm-hmm. We also have another goal, which is to train those appetites and to train those sensibilities to actually enjoy and appreciate what is good. I had a student come up to me once in the classroom saying, Mr. Andrews, I don't like this book. And I said to her, this class is not about you reading what you like. <laughs> this cl- class is about you learning what is good and learning how to like that. Mm. And so there is a legitimate role for that in the classroom. And scope and sequence decisions, I think, are the are the key to handling that problem. Maybe maybe the key then is figuring out what tends to cause students to dislike great works of literature. And it might, one of the things is certainly probably that we try to make them do too much too quickly. I would agree with that. And if we can eliminate the common hindrances, we may be able to find ways to teach them to enjoy it. And certainly some kids just don't want to do schoolwork. Right. You're going to get it. You're going to run up against that, but that, you know, hopefully we can beat that out of them. Right. I would also a good say solid <laughs> beating with good the, solid thrashing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I, always works. Right. I would also say that a, uh, a lack of proper technique reduces enjoyment increases aversion teaching to, technique no no a, a lack of, of proper reading technique oh, okay. which is why we always focus on look this is how you read a story these are how stories are put together these are the questions to ask of stories these are the parts of stories recognize these and you will understand and understanding is yep. way more pleasurable yeah. than not we understanding. don't like not understanding no something. we do not like, most people my dad always says you know i don't hate math i did just hate mis- not understanding math exactly i hate being in the position of having content in front of me that i can't get that's over my head or that's inscrutable to me and i think proper reading technique helps with that it's weird because he also says understanding is overrated so there's like a fine line <laughs> that sounds like his problem yeah yeah exactly <laughs> okay so Let's touch on that second reason that I think people might say we shouldn't read modern literature, and that's a content thing. Okay. And they might argue that um, a lot of contemporary fiction um, puts on display characters or ideas or philosophies or whatever that we don't want to be around. Right. We don't want to put our children you know, in touch with. Um, and in particular, um, one of the things that is representative of a lot of 20th century literature and, and in its own way, some can very like modern literature, 21st century literature is, uh, and that's nihilism. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nihilism in a lot of 20th century, 20th century literature from Hemingway and Fitzgerald to Camus to, uh, on into much later in the, yeah. in the century. And you see a lot of, there are a lot of Christian writers who are responding to that. The O'Connors, Walker, Percy, mm-hmm. Tolkien and Lewis, certainly in, um, the list goes on. Right. Wah. But, you know, you write about Gatsby. 
the Great Gatsby writing about that in our in our magazine, and you, I know you love that book as do I. But like a lot of like Hemingway, it's there's a lot of nihilism going on there, right? <laughs> so we don't necessarily want our kids being st- steeped in nihilism, right? So how do we do? How do we balance that? How do we teach children or introduce children to books or film or anything that is steeped in in that sort of nihilism? Yeah, it's, it's so important. Such an important set of of uh, decisions to make as a teacher and as a parent, and it involves uh, what I always call drawing a pale, like the medieval kings used to do. That circle outside of which we will not deal inside of which belongs to our purview and it's our responsibility to judge and evaluate Hmm. and assimilate and use. And every family, every Hmm. classroom, every school board is responsible in this field of literature as in all other fields to draw a pail and Hmm. say for the fourth grade, we are going to keep it safe. We're going to keep it on the reservation. We're going to keep it in house. And there are a list of things that's not ready. It's not time to deal with. And I think, uh, when I talk, they haven't been prepared. They're not ready. They're not emotionally ready. They haven't been prepared. It would be a too heavy a bag to carry. I, I wouldn't let my son, whose reading level was very high, read Huckleberry Finn until he was much later than kids around him because I didn't think he was ready to handle some of those darker themes and and you know Twain's cynicism and that sort of thing. Yeah, my dad. That's that's a book that I remember as a kid. I was like third or fourth grade, and I think I had read Tom Sawyer or something like that. And I remember my third or fourth grade teacher, the school having. A copy of that and being like, oh, Huckleberry Finn, I've heard of that, and wanting to read it, and my dad wouldn't let me because okay. I remember him talking about the cynicism, yeah. and like, you, you know, that's not something for you to read or whatever. Right. And, and he's very open about that with me. I don't know if you were, but... Yeah, absolutely. I had no idea what it meant. And he might have said, I don't know, he might have said, it's not something for you to read yet. Uh, yeah, I think that's what he said, yeah, because I know, and I know now he really likes that book. So. Right, because he's grown up. And he can handle cynicism. What he can do is he, he can read well enough. And he enough. has at least relatively good taste. <laughs> right. He's, he can read well enough to see what Mark Twain is doing, to understand things like tone. Mm-hmm. And he can, he can assimilate mm-hmm. Mark Twain's cynicism and the wrong-headed conclusions from my perspective that he comes to about things like organized religion. Uh, he can see those things and assimilate them and mm-hmm. say, aha, I get what Mark Twain was trying to say. I happen to disagree. He's capable of making judgments. Exactly right. Yeah. We need to teach our kids to make judgments, too. And that involves knowing when they're old enough to give it a try. But then it also involves giving them stuff to make judgments about. And if we only ever mm. give them things that we have approved that are things they don't need to make judgments about because we've yeah. already judged them for them, we haven't done them any service on that second goal and that second uh, project. And at some point, they're going to have to learn how to do that. I always say, while they're in my house is the best time yeah. to get started. Well, it's like that. You know, I I know people who, I don't know, I'm not going to make any judgments about people who are teetotalers or don't drink alcohol. That's not, I don't have, I'm not making a statement about that on a Cersei platform. (laughs) That's a smart move. Yeah. But, you know, it's like the the idea that people talk about how when you teach kids to, say, drink beer or wine in your home in moderation, then when they go to college or are on their own, they're more likely to make good judgments. And there's been studies done on that. Um, Or if you teach them how to, if you if you give them some freedom to make decisions on the kind of movies they watch, then they're less likely to watch just terrible things right. later on. So you were able to teach them to moderate themselves. Um, it seems like the same idea. Well, I think that's, I think it's similar. Or at I least think, you're getting. A, I think it's similar. But I think even it, there's a there's a closer similarity than that. When we read it, when we read with our children a book that we fully approve of, 
Mm-hmm. If we're doing it right, we're having a conversation afterwards with them and we're saying, see all the ways that the themes and ideas of this book line up with the themes and ideas we're trying to teach you in our home. And they say, yes, mommy, I do see. And we make that connection for them. Actually, it's the very same process when we're reading a book that has themes and ideas that contradict the ones we're trying to learn in our home. We can have the same conversation, say, see the themes and ideas of this book? See how different they are from the themes and ideas we're trying to teach you in our home? You see that connection? And I would argue that that experience can be just as powerful in reinforcing our worldview with our children as the other. So, the, okay, the first step to introducing or allowing our students to read works that are of nihilism and other negative ideas or happenings or whatever in them is the preparation stage. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we know when they're ready? Can you know? This is one of the reasons that I'm a, um, such a supporter of the homeschool paradigm. Because I think philosophically speaking, the first principle of homeschooling is that mom and dad are the ones who know. Mom and dad are the ones on the scene. The relationship with that student is is visceral and intimate in a way that it can't really Intangible, be yeah. anywhere else. Yeah. And I don't think anyone can know except mom and dad. I knew when my son was, I knew that he was not ready for Huckleberry Finn. And, and I didn't even, I didn't make a, a pro and con spreadsheet. I just looked at him. I looked at something instinctive about it. Something visceral said, nope, not yet. Did you, when, when he was ready, did you, was it pretty clear to you? Did you have an instinctive feeling? I thought, I thought, oh yeah, he could totally handle that now. Yeah. So, okay. So, but that's not the situation for everybody. Either the, some, either the families who have students in schools or the teachers themselves. Um, Right. And, and I think that what I would want to be is, is a participant in the conversation that, su- that always suggests that we draw the pail maybe a little bit more broadly than we are instinctively want to do. Beca- like more conser- conservatively? No, at, wider. At home or in the school? In, this, in a school situation. Working in the context of, of, of school boards and, and curriculum committees and parent-teacher associations and all that kind of stuff, in, the, in those structures and contexts... I would want to always suggest that we consider drawing the pail more broadly because of the great benefit that can result, the opportunity there is to do more effectively what we're trying to do in the first place, which is create culture makers, Mm -hmm. create people that are engaged with the culture they live in and can participate in turning it to a good direction, pushing it in a good direction. In order to do that, engagement with the culture is absolutely critical. Trying to think how to phrase this. Do you think that we need in a school setting, we need to be more quick to pull the plug because you have a wider variety of experiences and like the teacher can't, can be less on top of how a student is responding to it. Like it's a lot harder to be, to understand the nuances of a student's response to a work of literature when you're dealing with say 12 or 15 of them, than when you're dealing with two or three and and then you're dealing with them all for an hour a day or whatever. So if there's a, do we need to be more quickly to say, you know what? I thought maybe they were ready for Hemingway or Camus, but maybe they're not and pull that plug quicker. That's a good question. I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure I, I would know how to answer that. I, I guess what I would think is that this curriculum decisions would be made uh, among the adults on the scene. 
based on their uh, knowledge of the literature in question. And um, I'm assuming would be made via committee, would be made by consensus to where every, every, yeah, everyone was more or less true. comfortable with the fact that these books will work. And if a student has an adverse reaction, then... This is how we deal with it. Right. And... Okay, so let's talk specifically about nihilism. Then We've talked about this before. You, you, you've written about this, as I said. Books like Gatsby is, and The Stranger say, um, there's a, a lot of it. Mm-hmm. How, do, how should we broach this 20th century nihilism with our students how do we help them understand it in a way that's not i mean should we worry about them all our kids becoming nihilists that's a good question i like the way you put that um should we should we worry about our kids becoming 19th century slaveholders when they read huckleberry finn should we worry about our kids becoming um rapacious industrialists by reading charles dickens we probably should worry about that should we (laughs) should we worry about our kids becoming um um foppish courtiers by reading Shakespeare. I, I think not. I'm worried about that. <laughs> My kids. <laughs> I think not. Here's what, here's, I would always like to talk about this in terms of the opportunity that's before us. When we read and understand Ernest Hemingway, it's not just that we're reading and understanding nihilism. That's the first stage. We are actually hearing nihilism being uh, explained and articulated by a proponent. By someone who knows it inside and out. A much better way to right. learn about nihilism <laughs> yeah. is to read Hemingway yeah. than to read some encyclopedia article yeah, on list, nihilism. This is what not the seven things that exactly. make up a nihilist viewpoint. Yeah. Listen to a nihilist talk. That's how you yeah. learn. So that's stage one. But isn't it isn't it true though that you're more likely to be enticed or be enamored by the eloquent nihilist speaking nihilism than the dictionary definition? Perhaps, but I don't think you're ever gonna be more enticed and enamored by a by the influence of a novel, then you are going to be enticed and enamored and formed and shaped by the influence of your family or the influence of your classroom, the influence of the... So the context in which the book is read is critical, is critical. To everything. But here's the opportunity that we often miss by saying, oh no, nihilism, my kid will be defiled. Let's not read it. Yeah. We miss this opportunity to right. understand nihilism from one of history's great articulators of nihilism and then to be able to recognize it when we see it not in the next book that we read but in our neighbor Mm. because hemingway wasn't the only nihilist yeah right he was just the most articulate one yeah my neighbor's a nihilist too and the sadness and depression and despair that plague hemingway's characters plagues my neighbors all the time Mm. and they get it for the same reasons they get it because they've done what hemingway did they've denied the possibility of a personal god and they have taken that lie down into their hearts. And nihilism is the philosophical result. What reading literature well can do for us, even nihilistic literature, is give us compassion and empathy for the world. Hmm. And I think this is one of the highest goals of education hmm. that can't be, can't be gained quite as efficiently with Shakespeare and Dickens as it can with Fitzgerald and Hemingway, because they didn't write in our day and age. They weren't hmm. faced with exactly the same troubles that we are faced with. Hmm. Obviously, that's that's okay. relatively well said. Well, I mean, thank you. Maybe you could have said a little better. <laughs> no. <clears throat> that's the, yeah, that's really useful. Um, it, it's it seems that so much of our parent raising, not just our I mean our children raising, our parenthood, mm-hmm. and not just our teaching, is um, done based on fear. 
exactly right. And you're speaking something like, we don't need to be afraid of it. Right. In fact, one of the glories of literature is that we can encounter all the ideas of the world, true, false, safe, dangerous, and otherwise, in a safe environment. Mm -hmm. The environment of a a homeschool classroom around the kitchen table, the environment of of a school classroom with a concerned teacher backed up by a good parent board or whatever. We can encounter all the ideas of the world in safety. And not only learn about them so that we can converse with them in our culture, but also have compassion on the poor lost people who are, we're surrounded by. Hmm. So it's the, it's the Christians who should read pagan literature and not the pagans. (laughs) That's fairly well said too. (laughs) Uh, Well, this has been really fun. Thank you for spending some time here. I appreciate it, David. Thanks for the invite. Any, anything you want to say about what, uh, Center for Lit is doing right now? Anything you want to pitch? Oh, my goodness. Center for Lit is doing what we always do, putting tools in the hands of parents and teachers to lead the kind of discussions that we've been talking about. We've got curriculum materials, online classes, uh, seminars. We've got a, a membership society that gives resources for uh, for parents and teachers to do this kind of work every day. Uh, we're out on the convention circuit, so if you see uh, the Center for Lit booth at a homeschool convention, come along and say hi. And what's your website? It's Center for Lit. Com. And you have your own podcast too, don't you? Yeah. My, my staff and I do Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. We talk about all things literary. What's the, is just, that's just on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever people get podcasts. Yep. Bibliophiles with an F B I B L I O F I L E S. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right. Well, definitely we encourage our listeners to go check out Bibliophiles, check out the center for lit website. Um, we are happy to be partnering and be friends with you guys. Hey, same here. Thank you. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.